You're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Do you want to speak with confidence and authority, have more influence, and get bigger and better results? Whether you're a top executive, an entrepreneur, or climbing the career ladder, this is the show for you. A leader who wants to inspire others and leave a lasting legacy. Now here's your host, world-renowned TEDx speaker, author, and executive communication coach, Dr. Laura Sokola. Welcome to the podcast, Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, your host, founder of Vocal Impact Productions, and author of Speaking to Influence, Mastering Your Leadership Voice. Everybody likes lemonade. And it's not about whether life gives you lemons one way or another. Lemonade is just something that I think has become a part of all of our lives growing up as children, as adults. But there are some lemonades that are a little bit sweeter and yet more bittersweet than others. And I have the honor and the privilege of speaking today to one of what may be the most famous lemonade out there, and that is the beauty of Alex's Lemonade, from Alex's Lemonade Stand. My guest today is Liz Scott, co-executive director and mother of the founder of Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to changing the lives of children with cancer and their families through medical research and family support. Liz, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so happy to be here. Thank you. Now, in case there's anybody out there who has not seen an Alex's Lemonade Stand at a, an event or a street corner or someplace else or has not had the opportunity to try Alex's Lemonade, which I highly, highly encourage everybody to do, should you see that great big little street stand there somewhere in your neighborhood or in your city walking by one day. Give us a little overview. What is Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation? Alex's Lemonade Stand was founded by my daughter, Alex, in our front yard. She fought cancer her whole life and decided she wanted to raise money to help other kids like her by selling lemonade. In her lifetime, she raised over a million dollars to help find a cure for kids with cancer before she passed away at the age of eight and a half. Fast forward now, 15 plus years, we're one of the largest pediatric cancer organizations in the United States. We fund research on a national and international level, and we provide support to families everywhere who are battling cancer with their children. There's about 42 different things I want to tease out of that and dig into a little bit more deeply. But for anybody out there who is a small business owner, whether you're a startup or well-established, did you hear exactly, did you do the math? Alex was how old when she contracted cancer originally when she was diagnosed and then when she started this foundation? She was not even one year old when she was diagnosed with her cancer, neuroblastoma. And she was just four years old when she started selling lemonade in our front yard to find a cure. What did she say to you? What was that conversation like when she announced this decision? She actually started talking about having a lemonade stand. She had just turned four. It was January and it was cold out. So I- Where were you geographically? So we were in Hartford, Connecticut. We were still living in Connecticut. My husband and I were born and raised there and we're living there. Connecticut is cold in January. I can vouch for that. Yes, even colder than- Philadelphia. (laughs) And we put her off for months. Finally, she talked about the stand every couple of weeks for months. And finally in June of 2000, so this was quite a long time ago now, Mm -hmm. she asked again and she said, it's getting hot out now. We still haven't had my lemonade stand because my excuse was, of course, that it was too cold. And I said, almost, you know, sort of exasperated by her pestering me about this lemonade stand. What do you want to buy so badly? that you need to have a lemonade stand. And she said, I'm not keeping the money. I'm giving it to my doctor so they can help kids the way they helped me. And that's important, I think, 
because what I believe she was referencing at the age of four and a half was that about six months before, right before she started talking about having her stand, she had participated in her first experimental treatment. We told her Mm -hmm. it was a brand new treatment. And that's what brought our family to Philadelphia to try this brand new treatment. And we had to get her excited to go to a new hospital. It's very intimidating. And it worked. She felt better. She was off pain medicine. So Mm. it dramatically affected her in a matter of a few days. And she told us it worked and she was happy and, you know, wanted to play and all those things she hadn't been able to do for a little while because of her cancer. And I think it planted the idea that there was more that could be done to help other kids like her. That's amazing. So at four years old, she decided that she wanted to do a lemonade stand as a fundraiser without knowing the word fundraiser, but to give money to doctors to help them find new cures to help more children. Yes, I know. It's hard to believe. But if you knew Alex, it wasn't hard to believe because mm. she she had big ideas for a four-year-old and a three-year-old and a five-year-old and a six-year-old. <laughs> she, she came up with ideas that you would just sort of think were cute and funny, but maybe not realistic, right? Right, right. And that's within, so she started it at four and a half. And you said she she lived to be eight. And so in the four years, give or take, that she was running this lemonade stand and building out her little empire of sorts, she was able to raise a million dollars for cancer research. She was able to raise a million dollars. And that wasn't, I don't believe that's what she set out to do. Her original thought when I told her she would only raise five or $10 was, I don't care, I'll do it anyways. But I think she saw the power of what she was doing because each year when she would have her stand, more people would hear about it and they would do lemonade stands and send Mm. the money to her. So she got this idea that she could raise a million dollars. So when she was just turning eight years old and really didn't have a lot of time left, she knew the treatments weren't working. She decided that if everybody had lemonade stands, instead of just her, if everybody had lemonade stands, we could raise a million dollars to help find a cure. And that became this incredible call to action, which really turned into a movement, which has continued to this day, 21 years later, or 15 years, I guess, since then. And for everybody out there who is a leader, whether it's of your own business or, uh, you know, another organization, there's so much talk that I hear about what makes a leader, what makes a movement. And a movement is only a movement. You know, you can have people who follow you and are excited, but if you step out voluntarily or otherwise, does it continue without you? And if it doesn't, it's not a movement. It's people who like you and follow you because you're you, but that's not the same thing. By definition, what you have described, Liz, is a movement at its core that she started at four and grew this massive vision of raising a million dollars, which of course you've now done infinitely more than that. But she, as a child, got the million dollars raising by just inspiring others to follow suit and to help out and to contribute and how it has scaled since then and how in 20 years since her passing, the movement still continues and grows stronger every day. I think that's so inspiring. So for everybody out there, understand you are only held back by your own beliefs with regard to what you can and can't do and to get the ability to inspire others to pick up 
whatever it is, whether it's a sword or a spoon or a pitcher, as the case may be, and to be able to inspire others to follow that voluntarily, even when you aren't there to lead them per se. That's phenomenal. That's just absolutely phenomenal modeling of leadership. So we thank you and thank Alex for providing that inspiration for today. In all this, Liz, what's your favorite part of your job and why? That's a really hard question because I have a fantastic job. I would say it has to be, I guess, on a general big view, all of the incredible people I get to meet, whether it's supporters who they don't have a personal connection like I do, and they are going so above and beyond to help raise money and raise awareness. And of course, families who come to us because their child is fighting Sometimes it's because their child has survived and they know that Alex's Lemonade Stand funding has been a part of that, or we've helped them in some way along the way. These people just inspire me every day. And I couldn't feel more grateful to have the opportunity to work with so many wonderful people all the time. I would imagine that's something that just to work in, a, in an environment that touches your heart every day, not just is you know, intellectually stimulating or financially lucrative, et cetera, but to know that it's coming and you're taking on your daughter's legacy. You're really keeping that. And that just as a mom myself, I can only imagine what that must. You know what? I, I honestly, I'm going to take that back. I can't imagine what it must take, give and take each day to carry that forth. So, you know, on behalf of my child, the children and, and all others, you know, thank you for what you're doing to make sure that other kids don't have to suffer the way that she did. So, so thank you from all well, of us. Thank you. We're, we're lucky to do it. And I think at the beginning, it was very much about Alex and taking care of her and her legacy. And over the years, it's grown into something much bigger. That's about all of the families out there and all of the supporters and how together we are doing this. Yes. Um, for all the kids. So that to me has been a big evolution, I would say personally. Sure, sure. Now, currently, what's something that's important or exciting that's happening or that's upcoming? And how do you have to talk differently to different stakeholder groups about it? The most exciting thing we're doing right now is as on the research front. So, you know, the past decade in particular, the past five years, even we've seen what I would consider leaps and bounds, even though I know it's taken decades and decades and decades of the hard work of researchers and funders to get here, but leaps and bounds in terms of how they're examining pediatric cancer and not just pediatric cancer, but diseases in general and the technology that's allowing them to do more and to be smarter about the way they're treating, which is especially true in kids. So we have a huge initiative called the Crazy Eight and I'm not going to bore you with all the details of why it's called that, but basically we decided we've done traditional research grants in the, say, $150,000 to $250,000 range for innovative ideas over the years. We decided we wanted to fund huge projects, multi-institutional, collaborative projects among researchers, the best of the best, to tackle the hardest to cure pediatric cancers. And we set out a couple of years ago with an RFA we started funding our first four. These are four to five million dollar projects. We have another one coming up and these will be game changing. These are exciting as can be in terms of pediatric mm. cancer research and what they're tackling and how they're tackling it. Why are they called crazy eights? So it was eight topics. We identified eight topics and I just, I like fun names, but I also sure. really like the card game crazy eight as a kid. <laughs> yes. So I thought we called it the crazy eight, honestly, because 
it seemed crazy at first to think that we could do this. Like we started in her front yard, that we as an organization were going to be the pediatric cancer organization that said, bring your big ideas to us, bring your most innovative, high risk, but high payoff ideas to us for four to $5 million and we will fund them. Bring all these people together, the best of the best seems crazy because as one of our researchers recently said in the meeting we had with them, basically we were competitors and now we're collaborators. And that's mm. really powerful. Yes. Right? All these researchers studying the same thing for decades are now coming together to solve the problem. And it's exciting to researchers. It's exciting to me. But how do I talk about that to yes. the average donor or to the fourth grade class that I'm going right. to be speaking to next week? So we have a lot of different audiences. And it's really important, you know, the reason people are giving us money for the most part is because they want to help children. So we always have to bring it back, no matter what the audience, to how is this going to help children? How we get to that point is a little different depending on who we're speaking to. So when you're talking to those funders or you're talking to those researchers or you're talking to that fourth grade class, what's one tweak that you'd have to make to make sure that you're hitting home with each of those groups? Well, certainly the level of detail in the language is probably the biggest tweak. I mean, talking to fourth graders, they like a lot of detail, actually, but I find keeping it simple is usually best when you're talking to researchers. They don't want simple. They right. want detail. They want detail. So it, there's a lot of nuances in communicating, and I haven't figured them all out yet, but we are constantly thinking about how we're talking and how we're getting our message across. Sure, sure. And it really is about inspiration for something like what you're bringing on. With regard to all of those different communication adjustments, what are you really good at and what do you wish you were better at? Well, I, I think I'm, I'm very good at, because it comes from my heart, expressing, obviously telling Alex's story, but expressing the importance of the legacy she left, expressing the importance of the work we're funding and how it's changing the lives of kids and their families because I've seen it and I've felt it. And I wanted to be one of those families. I wanted to be the family that that clinical trial cured their child. Of course. So that comes more naturally for me. Like anybody in the world, anything that's not as natural or is a tougher topic for me to wrap my head around. I, have, I wish I was better at communicating the science. I can mm. listen to it and listen to it. And I've read books and I've taken courses and I still struggle with translating science into yeah. terms that are accurate, but also understandable. This I is would still I haven't figured out yet. It's hard enough, I think, when we suffer from what I like to call the expert's curse, where we know too much, and it's hard to distill it down to something that the average person can wrap their head around. And it's not easier necessarily when you are the average person in this particular area, and you're trying to read all these medical journals and all this technical, where no, you know, every third word has at least eight syllables to it. How do you translate that into something that mere mortals can understand? That's got to be tough. And I'm not, I'm not a natural scientist. Mm. So I don't even necessarily have the sort of natural ability to read something sciencey and grasp it. I have to literally read it over and over again because the terms, you know, just get jumbled, lost in my head. It wasn't, I thought I was a good science student until I went into this field and you hear these researchers talk and you think, oh, wow, 
it's another language. Oh, sure. Look, I mean, I was a decent student in biology class in high school, but that's not the same thing as, you know, organic chemistry and, and nuclear molecular. Do you ever think you're good at science? Sit in on one of our review calls and listen to these researchers and you think, <laughs> oh, wow, I don't know how I got through biology and did well in it. <laughs> And good little do us of humble pie as dessert for the, after lunch. Very yes. nice. Very nice. So let's shift gears a little bit here. Tell me about, actually, I'd like you to talk directly to the audience rather than talking to me today and challenge us. Give us your 24-hour listener influence challenge. What is one step that you'd like to challenge our listeners to take today that they can complete within 24 hours to have more influence? I am a to-do list person, as many people in the world are. But mm-hmm. what I learned a few years ago was I do a weekly to-do list instead of a daily, which I find much more manageable. I like to cross things off. But what I've added to my to-do list that has really changed my life for the positive is personal things that I would like to do. So these are the things you might say, well, if I have time, I'll go for a walk. If I have time, I'll you know, get my nails done, whatever it is you like to do for mm-hmm. yourself. If I have time, I'll call my mom, right? Things that are important to do and make you feel connected to other people. I'll call my friend. I started putting those on my to-do list and treating them like any other item on my to-do list. So at the end of the week, if I'm looking at my to-do list and everything crossed off is say work-related and all those good things that add to my life and my well-being which makes me do my job better, by the way, yes. um, are still on there, then I will literally think, okay, that, that's got to change next week. So yoga is my thing. I like to do yoga almost every day. That is always on my list. And I have some weeks where I think, wow, I really didn't even get a chance to do it this week. I was too, quote, too busy. But if it's prioritized like everything else on your to-do list, you can't be too busy to do it because you got all those other things done. <laughs> right, right. You have to take care of yourself. That's self-care first in order to do anything else that would have influence on other levels. You can't do it if you're not well and healthy yourself. And I never understood how to put that into practice until I started just literally treating it like a to-do, but it was a fun to-do. Yes, scheduling it into your calendar, having that 30-minute block that just says walk or manicure or something, just and committing to that the same way you would commit to somebody else for an appointment. It's an appointment Exactly, same way you would commit to a meeting or yes. anything else that you kind of need to do, right? Right, right. And I think, I don't know if it's something that we as women feel more challenged about or if guys out there feel free to shoot a message back to us and say, nope, we struggle with it too. But the idea of scheduling the self-care, scheduling a, a manicure, scheduling a lunch out just for the sake of a lunch out, it almost feels there's a guilt to it? Like, is it just being self-indulgent? Are you being selfish? Are you not being responsible and doing all the other things that you quote unquote should be doing for other people in particular? But there really is an importance. Now, it's not to say that every day you're going to schedule a walk and a lunch out and a mani-pedi and a massage and a whatever else, but it also can't be never. Well, and that's a good point because if I get to the end of the week and I see I did a great job doing all these things I you know like to do or exercise, I can't say I really like to do, but I should do for myself. <laughs> And I didn't get through my work to do, I shift the other way. And I think, well, this is going to really be a focus week for me for work. You know, I'm going to hunker down and, and do what I need to do to kind of balance things back out again. All right. So everybody commit to yourself, a little bit of self-care, schedule it on the calendar, make it part of your weekly to-do, schedule something for yourself. That's a want, but for that soul level health, or at least physical one way or another. Love it. All right. Now let's shift a little bit and tell me about some of the 
learning curve that was part of all of this. I mean, you didn't start out as wanting to be an entrepreneur, wanting to run a foundation, wanting to do all of this. In the last 20 years that you've been doing it, what is an example of a communications-related mistake that you've made? Gosh, I'm sure there's a lot of them. I think, you know, it's hard to say it was a mistake. It, it probably, at the beginning, it was unavoidable to have a lot of emotion mm. in my communications. Of course. As the years went on, I learned that I could communicate without being too emotional, mm. but I wasn't always doing that. So I would say that, again, I don't want to call it a mistake, but I would say when I got to the point where I recognized that oftentimes my communications, and I don't just mean like speaking to people, I mean, interacting with people who work for me, interacting with, you know, usually with probably the internal where the emotion would come out, right? When I learned that I could be more effective and I could control my emotion and think about my reaction, I became much better at everything I did, I would say, internally and externally. So I would say the mistake I made was in not recognizing that sooner, right? Because I, I think it was there. And I think I had a couple of good close people to me who pointed it out to me, but I probably wasn't ready to hear it. Or there was an element of saying, well, of course it's emotional. How could it not be emotional? Sure. But it doesn't mean it has to come through. And every interaction is not emotional when you're talking mm. about sending a newsletter out, but that doesn't have to be an emotional conversation. So mm. I would say that was a mistake I made, was not recognizing that sooner. So if I can just clarify a little bit to make sure I'm understanding when we're, because expressing emotion in the workplace is something that women in particular hear a lot about the the taboo nature of it. And if you know, finding the balance between, I think that the key word that you, that I heard you say was too, right? Is it too much? When is it? Oh, the two. So how did you identify? Because look, I cannot imagine one person with a pulse, with a soul who would recognize that a parent has lost a child. And frankly, I don't know how you get out of bed some days. I, I can't even imagine that kind of loss. But then to say, no, you shouldn't feel emotional at work. You shouldn't let it you know, creep into your day or something. How do you find the balance between being authentic and allowing yourself to feel the grief and allowing yourself to be who you are, not feeling like you're suppressing, because I don't think suppression of emotion is healthy or helpful for that matter. But how did you finally find that balance? And of course, like you said, over time, things evolve. But how did you find that balance between the means, the timing, the manner in which to allow whatever you were feeling in the moment to manifest in, in a way that you needed to have that catharsis, but also in a way that didn't dominate or didn't derail what else you wanted to achieve in some of those interactions. Did I get that yes, right? Yes, and as I'm, as I'm actually, balance? I'm really glad you asked for that clarification because the emotion is still there. The emotion is always there. Yes. And the emotion really drives what we do and sure. why it's so important and urgent. I think what I should have said was reacting in an emotional way. Mm, okay. So you can feel the emotion and you can pause in your words that you react with can come from a place of emotion, but they don't need to be, I don't want to say overly emotional. Cause again, that sounds like a judgment on emotion, which it's not, but they can be thoughtful and convey that emotion in a way that doesn't feel 
painful. So as an example, so, you know, I can remember times where maybe a staff member would, and we have wonderful staff. And if there are any of them are listening, they'll probably laugh at this. The ones who were working at the time would maybe suggest something. And I would go, oh gosh, like, no, like, you know, we can't do that. And just sort of immediately your, your reaction comes in and, and you don't say it maybe in the best way versus thinking about it and thinking, first of all, well, can we do that? Why am I saying we can't? And if we can't, how do you express it in a way that feels productive mm. and helps that person understand more? It's definitely a nuance or a balance to it, but it's a clear distinction, I would say, in how I communicate now with how I communicated then. Sure. So it sounds like the emotion that you're expressing is, do you think it was those kinds of um, knee-jerk reactions of sorts to what can and can't be done? Was that driven from, when you use the word emotion, was it driven from the emotion of the pain of loss or was it driven from an emotion of just like fear of the unknown in the business world? You weren't a trained businesswoman. You weren't, you know, you hadn't asked for any of this really that I know personally I get stuck on some people will suggest certain things that are way outside of anything I'd considered before as far as business development and the like, oh my gosh, could I do that? Well, what would that take? I don't know how we get stuck in the tyranny of the how, so to speak. Is that the kind of, you know, what was the emotion that was driving those knee-jerk reactions that you were rather than a thoughtful, let me think about that, let me chew on it, and then let me decide what my response should be. What was the emotion a, behind it? I, I would say it was grief. It was okay. pain, it was still I guess you would sure. say. It was, it was still, and, and the grief is still there, but of course it's probably managed better at this point, obviously all these years later. But it, you said it exactly. It's about how do I think about this and give a, a response that's productive, Mm. not just clearly coming from a place of emotion because that's hard to be around all the time. People look to you as a leader to kind of set the tone, right? So right. you want that everyone to have that emotion in their, in our jobs. It's so important, but you also want people to feel that there's thoughtfulness and not sort of reactions all the time to, right. to decisions that are being made. Right. And it's, not about denying the emotion. It's not about suppressing the emotion or pretending it's not there. It's just not letting it dominate the decision-making process. The communication style, I would say. You can even express the emotion. It's just the style and the way. Like it's, you know, the old, it's not what you're saying, it's how you're saying it, right? right. I mean, that's really the main difference. Sure. And I think it could be the how you or the what you say, because if you are feeling something, just to tell people candidly, look, I'm dealing with X at the moment. So if I come across a little high strung or I come across a little this, just it's not you. It's me. Don't take it personally. Give me an hour and I'll be a little bit more whatever needs that to goes be. goes a so. long way. I agree. Sure, sure. You know, even in things like just by analogy, I work with a lot of people on fear of public speaking, for example, and they feel like they've got so many butterflies off and they'll say, you know, I just, I want the butterflies to go away. No, you really don't because that's a valid emotion. And in some ways the butterflies are there because you care. The day that the butterflies are all dead is the day that you stopped caring. That's not a good place to be. You want to just have the butterflies under control. So they're not kind of overrunning the farm, so to speak. That is the absolute perfect analogy. Cause I've said that before the emotions are still there, right? It's just not letting them rule sort of the, the way you make decisions and the way you communicate them in an obvious way, even though it's behind the scenes. Sure, sure. Well, it, words matter. Words yes. matter to people. And, and when you're in a leadership role, words matter a lot to people. Yes, yes. Then it's about how the words are delivered that just reinforces 
that importance from there. But yes, starting with the right words is, I think, mission critical. Okay, so where I think I'd like to go from here is with regard to the virtual influence, because I would imagine that for your organization in particular, that the last 18 months or so of the world no longer having large gatherings, not having public events, et cetera, would make it a lot harder to run a lemonade stand. So how have you pivoted to compensate and what have you gotten good at and what would you still like to be better at for your people in the virtual world? Virtually, we've had some successes. It's been much easier to bring people, for example, to put a researcher that we funded in front of our donors to gather them. We've done multiple of those virtually. Mm -hmm. And that's been an opportunity. And that's been, they've been well attended and well received to learn more firsthand, right? About what we're doing with the money. That's something that we will continue. Virtual events, we've had some successes with. Having said that, I think the biggest challenge is, and maybe, you know, a virtual event platform, people would disagree with me. You will never replicate the in-person experience exactly in a virtual event. Sure. Well, not when lemonade is literally what gets correct shared. So, right. Yeah. So the lemonade stands are a great example. You know, people did all kinds of creative and imaginative things, but it's still not as simple as having a lemonade stand and setting it up and your neighbors stop by. So those sorts of things we recognize are here to stay. They'll come back when the time is ready. When people are ready, they'll come back. But at the same time, it's given us a huge opportunity to think more on the virtual side. What can we continue or do more of? What can we do virtually instead of in person moving forward? There may be some things we decide to keep doing virtual. So it's been challenging, but um, certainly going to take the gains out of it as we move forward and definitely hope to get back to some in-person events as well. Yes. Yes. I think we all are more and more every day for that matter. Then we started this conversation because there was a beautiful child who had an inspiration. Let's talk to future children. Advice to the future graduates of uh, high school today. If you were asked to give the commencement address at a high school graduation ceremony, what advice would you give the graduates, whether or not they go to college, regardless of major or career goals? What's the one thing they have to do to be successful? I'm always reminded of a time in Alex's life when she really showed us why she was successful. Successful as an eight-year-old, really, when you think about that and what she built and has lasted. Mind-boggling. That was her ability to be grateful, which I think came naturally and it can come from having a huge life challenge like that. But at the end of her life, when she was so sick and had to go to the hospital again in the middle of the night and had every reason to complain. My husband apologized to her. He said, I'm sorry. As they got into the car, they go to the emergency room at 1 a.m. And she said, for what? And he said, for everything. And her immediate, without hesitation reaction, while she's in pain and having a lot of problems was to say, if there's one thing you should know about me by now, I'm happy for what I have, not unhappy for what I don't have. And that just caught my throat. It's such a simple message. It almost sounds cliche, right? Be grateful. But if you think about what it means to say that in one of your worst moments, she was probably three weeks away from passing. One of her worst moments where things were not getting better to have the grace and the ability to look at your life that way. 
I truly believe you could overcome anything. Yeah. Any hardship and obstacle. And clearly she did to build something that lived on without her. So I always like to give that lesson because as I say, like you might not need it today, especially if it's commencement day and you're feeling pretty good about things, but someday you may hit a day where something happens and you feel so challenged and you might remember that story, just sort of stepping back and being grateful. And it's hard to get to that point, but I think we all can. And I, and I think it allows us to do incredible things. Absolutely. And really on those super happy days, like graduation day are even more when you should make the practice of recognizing things to be grateful for, that you are there, that it is, you have completed that milestone, whatever, because that builds the muscle of remembering to be grateful. And it builds your mental, what's the right word, your stockpile of things that you have already consciously acknowledged that you're grateful for. So if nothing else, you can go, if you're having a lousy day and you can't find anything good today, go back and say, you know what, I'm grateful that I had that awesome day yesterday. So it just helps to have that many more items already in the in, in the, the bank. kitty, yes, in the bank. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. Thank you so much, Liz. This was incredible. Please tell everybody how they can learn more about Alex's Lemonade Stand Foundation. Easy. Go to our website, alexslemonade.org, or just do a search for us, and you will find us. Tons of information about childhood cancer resources for families, and of course, how to get involved and be a part of the movement. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your and Alex's story. Thank you. And to everybody else, thank you, as always, for tuning in. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And don't forget to give us a five-star rating on iTunes so we can help more people increase their confidence, presence, and influence. And finally, if you want to download my free guide to equipment recommendations for virtual influence, including my picks for microphones, lights, and more, go to speakingtoinfluence.com. I'm Dr. Laura Sokola, and you're listening to Speaking to Influence, communication secrets of the C-suite. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Laura Sakola, and I want to sincerely thank you for listening to the Speaking to Influence podcast. If you love listening to these episodes as much as I love bringing them to you, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. And please go to iTunes right now to rate and review our podcast in order to help us expand our reach so even more people can master the three C's to command the room, connect with the audience, and close the deal. Thanks for listening to Speaking to Influence, Communication Secrets of the C-Suite, the show for leaders who want to speak with impact. The hosts, producers, owners, and media distributors of the show make no guarantees that the strategies and information discussed will result in profit or other success and may result in losses. The opinions and statements of the hosts and guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the owners, staff, managers, broadcasters, or sponsors of the show. No medical or psychological therapy or personal or professional wellness or relationship advice is offered in the show. You are advised to seek counsel on matters related to your health, family, relationships, job, or other business and legal matters from licensed advisors in those areas prior to making any changes in business or lifestyle. No information provided may be suitable in your situation. As always, take responsibility for the decisions and actions you take, including the reactions they may make in your work, family, health, and life.